since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <laughs> I'm fired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of the DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Monday, July 14th, and welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. I'm your co-host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 18-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And I'm your co-host, Annie Goodman, young adult breast cancer fighter, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Show. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Suck, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world. One chemo infusion at a time. I'm Kenny Kane, co-founder of Stupid Cancer, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, iHeartRadio Talk, or listening to the archives on stupidcancershow.org. Tonight's show, I need a break. Cancer retreat. Life is crazy enough without cancer. Toss that in, especially for young adults, and it's a big, hot, red mess. Two, two incredible nonprofits worth knowing about that offer experiential outdoor retreats for young adults facing cancer. Join us as we speak with Nancy and Colin Farrow, co-founders of Epic Experience, and returning champions of the Stupid Cancer Show, Dr. David Victorson, co-founder of True North Trek, associate professor in medical social sciences at Northwestern University, and survivor Spalatina and Mallory Douge. And I'm Maureen Sweet, Manager of Programs and Operations here at Stupid Cancer, and I will be live tweeting throughout the broadcast at Chemodex. So send me your questions and feedback at any time with the hashtag SCRadio. All right. We're back on the air. We took a minor hiatus last uh, week because Kenny and I were both very away from the office. Done, done, done. Very far away. Oh, no. We How far away were you, Matt? Um, I, was, I was <laughs> I was watching the World Cup from a pub in London. A pub in London. I think the most fascinating thing about that is that you were watching the World Cup, actually. Yeah, it was only, <laughs> I, I was glancing at the TVs, but they were all around the whole Right. Madness. Yeah, you can't yeah. avoid it. Can't avoid that it. is so hipster of you. Not yeah. only are you a bandwagon-jumping American... <laughs> But you mm-hmm. jumped the plane to jump the bandwagon. Yes, mm-hmm. I did. <laughs> I only watch the World Cup when I'm in England. I hopped the plane. Yeah, I don't always watch the World Cup. When I do, I'm in London. Did you join a firm, one of those <laughs> football gangs? 
Oh my God! The, the people were going bullshit. Oh, are you a uh, what are those called? Green shoot hooligan. A hooligan? Are you a hooligan yeah. now? I don't know what that means. I think a that hooligan, means a like someone who causes a rocket. A soccer yeah. hooligan. Yeah, yeah, it's like the the crazy soccer fans are called hooligans. They have their own buses and they sing songs like on Euro Trip. Is hooligan the only refer reference in? Wait a minute, what? <laughs> <laughs> Where have you been? <laughs> no, the movie. Is hooligan exclusive to soccer? No, football, um, sorry. you could probably be a rugby hooligan if you want. It's pretty exclusive to the UK. You could also call a person here a hooligan. Yeah, but in terms of sports oh, fandom. Oh, okay. I think badminton, too. Badminton? Yeah. A cricket hooligan? I bet yeah. there's some cricket yeah. hooligans out there, too. <laughs> <laughs> Those two bases, I mean, really. Yeah. Well, that was Jonathan Shine here, guest starring here on the uh, the drop-in, late-night drop-in, Jonathan Shine, who was an 18-year young adult cancer survivor celebrating just turned 52. Yes, thank you for having me. You are, you are the alumni. I am the alumni. I'm the old old man in the sea. Well, welcome aboard. Welcome back. You were on the show, what, maybe five Four years ago? Four or five years ago. Yes, yes. yes. Hmm. Still around. It's it's uh, good to be anywhere. Yes. yes. And hello, Mallory. Always oh, waving on the radio. Hmm. But she has no oh, mic. She's my own. Own. <laughs> Mallory. Hello. <laughs> now I like to sign her. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I was in London because there was an international conference by a group called the Teenage Cancer Trust. They've been around for a very long time, and they are responsible for improving outcomes for young adults and teens in Europe, uh, largely in the UK, and I think somewhat in um, in uh, Scotland they have uh, some um, they, they build clinics like age appropriate, like pediatrics has a clinic. There's a kid clinic. You go and there's Ducks and squeaky toys and plushies. They build young adult clinics catered to the experiential needs of someone in their adolescent years to make it suck a little less. Is that kind of like Warp Tour? It's just yeah. like Warp Tour, except the exact opposite. Speaking in, of which, yeah, Kenny was away out of the office in where were you, Buffalo? And, I I was everywhere. Yeah. I think I did about seventeen hundred miles in a matter of. Six or the seven other days. road trip. Yeah, it, I mean, it's like a, a third of the road trip, and I did it all by myself. It was very lonely, actually. Yeah. I, I FaceTimed. I FaceTimed my girlfriend Lauren. Oh, that sounds safe. Okay. Well, I have, I have the cup holder oh, iPad. Yeah. Now. Okay. So I. That still doesn't sound safe. <laughs> it was what it was. I was, in, I, was in, I was in bumper to bumper traffic on okay, 95. on excellent adventure. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it was great. We got a great reception at Warp Tour. Met a lot of survivors. Met a lot of cool 14, 15, 16 year olds who now know about stupid cancer and cool. are walking around with our wristbands on their hands. And so for the un- uninitiated, what is Warp Tour? I think everyone knows what Warp Tour is. Well, That's for me, not true. Because it's not really the music I listen to. It's a traveling festival of merry musicians that happens every summer. This is the 20th anniversary of it. Wow. And uh, they do, I think they do 48 stops over 52 days. Wow. And there's anywhere between 25 to 40 bands. I would say there's probably about 30 nonprofits that put up tents just like I did. Mm-hmm. And there are vendors and merch tents and all sorts of good stuff. What kind of bands? Uh, this, a lot of like, roar, gritty, roar? like, like, that was Kenny Any band that goes, <laughs> yeah. No, I didn't. I didn't want to scare the listeners because it is pretty frightening. What, like uh, metal? Yeah, yeah. like okay. like screamo, like mm-hmm. grit. That that does scare me a little bit. Yeah, 
You're welcome. I didn't do it. Thank no you. Sadaka is what you're saying. <laughs> <laughs> it's very, uh, it, it's not my cup of tea, but the people there were lovely. Very cool. Uh, yeah, Thank that you. Was very nice. Speaking of traveling, Andy, you were in Baltimore, I saw on Facebook. Yeah. And you, you have some new best friends, I understand. Yeah, so uh, I went to Baltimore this weekend. I'm a big sports fan. For all of you who follow me on Twitter, it's probably what I tweet about the most besides cancer. Um, when I was in the hospital having about to have brain surgery, uh, I have a mutual friend with Joe Girardi who called me. I was in the hospital. He was very, very sweet. We talked for like 10 minutes on the phone. I happened to Joe be... Girardi is the manager of the Yankees. Yes. Sorry. We're that close. Yes. <laughs> yes. So then this weekend, my friends and I went to Baltimore to go to the Yankees to like Camden Yards. I've never done that before. I've never been to Camden before, so I figured that'd be fun. We actually stayed at the Yankee Hotel, which is the Four Seasons, so that was pretty fancy and it was nice. And I ran into Joe Girardi in the lobby and said, hi, remember me? I'm that girl you called in the hospital who had the brain tumor and was about to have brain surgery. And he said, oh, how are you doing? Blah, blah. Very, very nice. said, do you have tickets for tonight? And I said, I actually don't. We're still looking to buy some. And he got us. He said, okay, I'll get you tickets. And then I will also get you guys field passes. Give me your number. Have people call you. Set it all up. I show up. Uh, I'm on the field during batting practice, and I think the first thing I said to him was, I have to take a picture of Derek Jeter, and uh, my wish was granted. If there was, like, a make-a-wish a for adults, which I'm sure there is, but whatever, mine was to meet and take a picture of Derek Jeter. That happened while he was taking batting practice. Now what? And it was <laughs> You know, I actually made a joke. I hope I wake up tomorrow because, yeah. like, my morbidity is like, oh, my God. I, what do I have left to achieve? So anyway, that was just my uh, morbid joke. So I met Jeter. He signed some baseballs for me, um, hung out during batting practice with the manager, and our tickets were actually uh, right behind the Yankee dugout. So we Ooh. watched a Yankees, unfortunately, lost in the ninth inning. So everyone in Baltimore celebrated, but we had amazing seats, and um, – you know, I had a really, really great time. Did James O. Jones whisper, <laughs> No. Okay. What was your issue with Camden Yard stuff? Okay, so I'm a, I'm a spoiled New York fan. And when you go to games in New York and you have good seats, they deliver your food, snacks, beverages, whatever. So what, you had to walk to the stands to purchase food and then walk back to your seats to eat them? But when you are sitting behind the dugout, you don't want to miss a thing. And I was very disappointed that there were, I asked the usher, I said, are there waiters coming? And he was like, no, you just buy from the vendors that come around. Usually just like they all, you know, water, beer, soda. Um, If you wanted anything else food wise, if you want any food, you had to get up and the line was forever. So I just like, I always come prepared. I pack protein bars, and I eat that for dinner. And, uh, yeah, so that was my spoiled brat moment where I was like, where are the waiters? <laughs> um, but, yeah, it was really awesome. I'm so thankful for the Yankees organization for giving me this this experience because I still can't believe it happened. I talked to Jeter very briefly, um, but I can't. It's like, his la- it's like his last year. He's retiring. He's been playing for 20 years. And as Kenny pointed out, that he looked old. So we're not—we are not on speaking terms. But um, 
it was very surreal, and I'm, I'm very, very thankful and grateful that I had that experience. Well, speaking of experience, tonight's show is all about an experience that young adults get with cancer. You had your own first descent. You had your own epic experience. <laughs> yeah, I did. Yes, you did. Uh, so let's kick off the uh, the show with our our, um, our Survivor Spotlight tonight. Uh, the show two weeks ago was on renal cell carcinoma, and lo and behold, we have a stage four kidney cancer survivor, Mallory Dowd. One of the co-creators of Young Adult Kidney Cancer, the group on Facebook, was started after her um, experience at the OMG Cancer Summit. She is, a, is, is an aspiring uh, survivor counselor. We're going to learn more about that. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Mallory Dowd. Mallory, you get your own applause hey. here. How you doing? Hello. <laughs> I have to say you are one of the, the fiercest social media promoters of your being on the show. <laughs> than I could remember. So, well done. Ah, thank you. <laughs> I try, you know. Yes. So, uh, again, the irony of it, uh, you know, we did our show on Real Sale, and you are friends with Lauren Hassel, who was on the show. Um, I'd love you to talk us through how you met and your survivorship and your experience and what your life was like, you know, just six or seven months before everything changed. Yeah, so um, as far as Lauren and the Young Adult Kidney Cancer Survivors page goes, um, she went to OMG this year, and um, just before she went, I guess she had found Stupid Cancer on Facebook. And I I honestly don't know what I had posted or where, but she found me and noticed that I was another kidney cancer survivor. And so she just sent me a message, and we just started talking, and it it was wonderful because there are just so very few of us around. And so she went to OMG and came back and was just like really excited and gung-ho and asked if I wanted to start a, a page with her. And she's thinking about starting up something a little bit bigger. And uh, I said, absolutely, I would love to do that. Um, so that's kind of how that got started. And I mean, we, we only, we have about 225 people that have liked our page so far. And um, we're just waiting to continue to grow it and make it bigger to show people that we are here. <laughs> but um, and, and for that. It, it's like we like the upstartedness of all of this, and, and it's it's something that I'm very proud of. And to know that you're you're part of our community and you can inspire you know other people to do the same. Kidney cancer is such a rare cancer to begin with, but it's not even something that we've discussed as an organization yeah. because it it. You know, you're too young for kidney cancer, right? So, Absolutely. <laughs> yeah, of course, clearly. Um, so, so let's let's go back then. Uh, you were, um, you know, diagnosed in 2010. Yes. That was a long yeah, time ago. Um, How you <laughs> yeah, it was. It was almost four years ago that I was diagnosed, and um, I had actually, uh, well, now knowing now, I was starting to see the first symptoms of kidney cancer about two years prior to my diagnosis. Um, But I went to the hospital and they just said, oh yeah, you have an infection, here's some antibiotics. And so I took the antibiotics and that symptom went away and it looked like everything was okay. Um, However, if I was a 65-year-old male, they would have done a whole lot more for me at that time. Um, But uh, about a year and a half went by and I started just getting really sick. I was I had no energy. I couldn't keep any food down. I was losing a lot of weight. And I didn't know it at the time because I didn't really realize it, but I was taking a lot of ibuprofen. 
Um, I, you know, I bought like a 500 pill thing from Costco and I was eating it like candy and I didn't even realize that I was doing that. Um, and so I was just really exhausted and tired and my mom kind of forced me to go to the ER again. And I was like, they're not going to be doing anything. Everyone just keeps telling me I have an infection. Here's antibiotics. And I'd kind of given up at that point because nobody could tell me what was going on. Um, but I didn't have the energy to argue with my mother. So um, she took me to the ER, and this doctor, thank goodness, said, well, let's run a CT scan. And um, so he just went back and did a really quick CT scan, and it was at that moment that he came back, and he's like, well, we're going to have to do further testing, but given the placement and the size, I'm quite positive that you have kidney cancer. And, I mean, you don't usually get diagnosis like that from an ER doctor. Right. Well, they, your tumor was so large it was wrapping around your aorta. Uh-huh, yeah. Um, they ended up doing more tests and everything, and typically with kidney cancer, they just go in and they, they do surgery right away as quick as possible because um, chemotherapy really doesn't do a whole lot for kidney cancer. They haven't really found anything that does anything for it. But um, I had technically I had two tumors, one on the kidney and one on a nearby lymph node. And the lymph node one was much larger, and it was wrapping about 75% of the way around my aorta. And they really didn't want to do surgery because if they nicked that, I could, you know, bleed out and that'd be it. Um, so I ended up doing chemotherapy just to see if it would back off at all from that. And after a couple of months of doing chemo, nothing had happened. It had zero effect on it at all. So they wanted to do more. <laughs> and um, after, you know, two more months or so of chemo, um, it still had very little change. And they just decided that, you know, we had to do surgery or there was nothing else that they could really do. And thank goodness, you know, everything went well in the surgery. It was more complicated than they had originally thought. Um, and it took longer than um, expected, but they managed to to get it all out at that time. So, Yeah, I can't imagine what's going with your mind when you find out that you have a tumor that's actually wrapping around your heart. So then yeah. what was happening after that? Were you just going for, did you do any more treatment after that, or did you just walk out of surgery cancer-free and then just came back for checkups? Yeah, um, after the surgery, it was really just checkups after that. Um, I haven't had to do any chemo or any other kind of treatment since then, um, and it's just, you know, go in every six months just to make sure, and um, so far it's been so good. So it's been a little over three years since my surgery. I think what's most fascinating about your your story is that, you know, you were had a bachelor's in psychology before you were diagnosed, mm-hmm. and, you know, it's the best therapist are pretty crazy, right? So how did that play into your own, you know, emotional well-being? Do you diagnose yourself? How does that happen, and how do you work through it? Because clearly now it's a passion of yours to be there for other people as a, as a counselor. Um, is, is that something that, that helped you or hurt you in the process? Um, I think it's definitely helped me. Um, you know, I, I do have a background with, with a lot of different things, and I had already 
plan before I was diagnosed to go into counseling. Um, at that time, I was thinking more marriage and family therapy. Um, but, you know, just going through that whole experience and I had, um, it was a really lonely time. I had people around, um, but it was, I spent most of my time by myself. Um, <laughs> and so uh, coming out of it, I realized that I had a lot of depression and anxiety and um and so I just realized this is something that's actually quite common for anyone that goes through this experience. And um, so when I got into graduate school, because I needed something else to do now that cancer was over and I had to figure out what, my, what I was going to do with my life, um, I decided, you know what, I really want to help other survivors um, and even their families and friends that are going through this, because it's difficult on family and friends too. Um, and so... I know that there's a lot of anxiety and depression that comes through going through such difficult things, especially when you're stage four like me and, you know, everything looks pretty grim for a while. Um, and, you know, there even PTSD. I know there are a lot of people that go through a lot of really scary things with diagnosis. And um, I just realized that given my background and my passions, it's something that, you know, I think that I can really help people. And um, I think I think in some way it was all kind of planned way back when. I never really knew why I um, was going into psychology in my undergraduate. I didn't really know what was leading me in that direction. But it wasn't until I moved here to Virginia Beach that I and I started graduate school. I was like, this is what I want to do. So what? So you have your master's degree now, in, you know, even advanced, even more advanced in psychology. So then, what did you do with it? Did you start looking into cancer centers to get a job to help other patients? Well, I'm still in school. Um, I have about uh, three semesters left. It's a three-year program. Um, but in January, I will be doing my internship. And um, one of the internships that I'm really hoping I get is um, it's through a – oh, goodness, what is it called? Um Anyway, it's up in a in a hospital around here, and I would be doing counseling on their oncology ward. So at least I can start to get some experience that way um, as far as being on the other side of it all. And and um, so I'm hoping that through that experience I can go even further and, and talking with different organizations. And, you know, like Matthew was just saying, I'm pretty good at the whole social media thing, so I'm hoping to do a lot of networking to get me going through this. So what's your, uh, I mean, I'm, again, it's like we, we, I love the stories of young adults who get cancer and then go into medicine and then the, the oncologists who are treating, the oncologist young adult survivor treating other young adults with cancer is like looking into a mirror with a mirror. So you yeah. are now young adult survivor therapist, counselor. How, how do you think that might affect the way you counsel? You know, I think... Um... I think it'll really help me give people, ha have me have empathy for people because I just, I kind of know. Um, with everyone's stories being different, uh, you know, there's a lot of stuff that I'm not going to know, but I've, I've been there. You know, I've been there close enough. Um, and I just think it'll give me just a little something extra that maybe some other people don't have um, to relate and you know, um, a lot of people who go to, like, marriage counselors, they 
a lot of people say that they don't want to go to a marriage counselor who's never been married. You know, it's just kind of something like, well, you've never been married. You don't really know what you're talking about. Well, it's kind of maybe in the same vein here that people who are going through this cancer experience, they might feel more comfortable with someone who has been through the cancer experience. And I've made sure to take care of myself um, that I know it's not going to be too difficult for me when talking about certain things um, because I don't want to have a complete emotional breakdown when something hits a little too close to home. Um, But, you know, I've, I've been there, and so I can I can really help by relating. And how did you get – so you moved back in with your parents. You were sharing a room with your sister during your treatment. How did your diagnosis yeah. affect her and then also affect the rest of your family? Well, I'm not entirely sure um, what they were all thinking. Um, my father had just uh, retired about a year and a half earlier. Um, he had retired pretty young. He's back to working now but um you know so my mom was working and my dad since he was retired was able to take me to all of my appointments and everything and so that was just that was wonderful and it actually really helped my relationship with him um and we got to spend a lot of time together but I think that my a lot of my family took it pretty hard um my sister wasn't home a whole lot I think part of it was just really hard on her and so she spent a lot of time away from home um Part of this, I think, has to do with the fact that I was diagnosed at age 25. And my older sister, not the one that I was just talking about, but um, my other sister, she actually passed away at 25 years of age. So it's just kind of like a sensitive age in my family. Like, what else is going to go wrong for everyone at age 25? And so I think that it was just kind of, everyone was just kind of a little bit on edge, just kind of seeing what was going to happen. Um and honestly, I think part of it is we didn't really talk about what was going on. And that's another reason why I want to work with survivors and their families is that I know how important it is to talk through these things because we didn't really talk about it in my family. So and, and I, I want to talk about because you, you brought that you, you shared a room with your sister. Um, uh-huh. I I assume that since you were an adult at the time, you were not sharing a room with your sister when, until that point in time. Uh, can you talk about the, the role of your sister and the impact and, and the, the sibling issues, and is that an area of focus you see as valuable in, from a counseling perspective? Yeah. Um, you know, it was interesting because I was living out of state, and a couple of weeks prior to diagnosis, I just knew I was too tired and I wasn't doing well, and so um, I had my parents come pack up all my stuff, and we moved it back back to my home state. Um, they didn't have room at their house, but my sister um, was renting a house with a couple of roommates, and I was sleeping on the couch for the first couple of months. I was sleeping on the couch while I was diagnosed until a friend donated a bed, and it was a loft bed, so we just put it in my sister's room and right above her bed. So as adults, I was 25 and she was uh, 29, I think, um, we were basically having bunk beds and it was a bit humbling, (laughs) you know, trying to be independent people, but here we are sharing a room and a bunk bed. Um, But I really think that it helped a lot because uh, we realized how well we get along. Like we had no issues sharing a room together. And that was very strange to both of us because when we were younger, we would fight all the time. Um, 
And, you know, I think just having someone there is really important. Um, Having the – just having someone around that can help you um, and just to be there is extremely important to the process. I mean, they don't have to, you know, take you to the appointments like my dad was doing, but – Um, You know, she did my laundry for me because it was just too much for me to carry a laundry basket. Or she went out and bought me um, tons of Insure and Gatorade because that's really all that I could keep down. Um, And, you know, while she was working a lot and wasn't home too often, it was really important for for me and and everything to have her there and uh, um, just have that time to – to be with her. And I think, you know, when I talk with future clients that, you know, I, I will definitely encourage them to, to try to stay connected with their family um, because it's such an important support system. And with your kidney cancer group on Facebook and just for the future and vision of kidney cancer survivors who are young adults, what do you want to see happen for them? You know, um, early detection as with most cancers is really important because, um, honestly, what I really don't. Kidney cancer. Um, really, it's it's kind of hard because they're all very common symptoms. Um, just a little bit of back pain. I thought for a long time that mine was just like a my sciatic nerve was acting up, you know, but it was my kidney causing some back pain or um, weight loss, unexplained weight loss. Um, but the most common uh, symptom is blood in the urine. And unfortunately, a lot of times, um, it's you can't even tell. Um, when mm-hmm. it's early stage, you can't tell that it's there unless you have, like, a urinalysis, and then they, you know, do all the little things, and they can tell there's blood in the urine. But sometimes, such as in my case, um, it's extremely obvious, and um, that's when you know something is, is quite wrong. Um, and, you know... <laughs> If they had just said back that first first time, uh, two years before my diagnosis, here, let's just do an ultrasound, I'm sure they would have seen something even with just an ultrasound. But Yeah, well, so, we're all glad you're well and doing okay. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Mallory, we are uh, regrettably out of time, but I'm really glad that we had the chance to have you on the show and shed even more light on kidney cancer, especially for those who are not male and 70. So <laughs> yeah. thank you very much. And the Young Enough Kidney Cancer Group is on Facebook. I think you can find it through our website, and, and I'm sure we'll have you back on and be promoting it as well. And we, we look forward to having you back uh, at CancerCon. Let's try to rally up a nice contingency from the, uh, the kidney cancer groups. Thank you for all you do, and you are quite amazing. Take care of yourself. Thank you so much, guys. All right, Thank Mallory you. Dows, everyone. All right, Kenny, now the news real quick. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. All right, Matt, here's the news real quick. Head on over to events.supercancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social and educational events nationwide. Something can be happening here because we're starting to waste it. Oh, yuri, yeah. All right, Clifton, New Jersey, Casper, Wyoming, Denver, Colorado, New York, New York, Anchorage, Alaska, Minneapolis, Minnesota, Culver City, California, and Raleigh, North Carolina. Cancer is keep lonely. Up. What? Keep up. I'm not keeping up. I'm going to have a stroke. Cancer is lonely, period. And we've got the cure. It's called Instapeer, our forthcoming free mobile app that will bring instant anonymous peer support to anyone affected by any cancer. Visit instapeer.org to watch our video, learn more about the project, 
and consider making a tax-deductible donation so you can be a part of history. Instapier.org. All right, Matthew, it's always a good time to stock up on your stupid cancer gear. Visit stupidcancerstore.org anytime and stay nice and cool with all new products and styles to choose from. We've got an awesome skateboard. And don't forget about Flip, our cancer bird, the cancer bird. He was a hit at Warp Tour. Everybody wanted a bird that gave the middle finger. It's rather interesting. Yeah. Be proud. Wear stupid cancer. And that is and your stupid cancer news. The main event. Joining us tonight, David Victorson is an associate professor of medical and social sciences at Northwestern University and founder and president of North Trek, a nonprofit dedicated to helping adolescent and young adults with cancer find direction through connection to nature, to peers, and to themselves. And joining him is Nancy Farrow. She's a married mother of three adult children and student ending a daughter in law to our family. While raising her children and volunteering, in many areas, and she held the feeling of helping others. She attended San Diego State University, is an honorary alumni of Santa Clara University, and she has worked as a development associate for Loretto High School in Sacramento, California. She's a volunteer coordinator for St. Anthony's Hospital in Denver, Colorado, and at Nordstrom's and other sales positions. Oh, we'd like to mention Nancy is also joined by her husband, Colin. Nancy and Colin Farrow, and returning champion Dave Vickerson. Thanks for joining us tonight. Awesome to be here. Thank you. Thank you. We'll clarify real quick, though. Colin Farrow is not my husband. That would be one of my kids. Oh, okay. <laughs> that would have been weird. <laughs> I stand corrected and embarrassed, but thank you. <laughs> no more than Colin. <laughs> okay, just Colin. Well, again, I wanted to do a show tonight. Um, we, we've done lots of shows on retreats, but we typically focus on some of the bigger guys that most people know about. And there's a much more a democratic uh, process out there now that really there are so many more wonderful groups that just simply did not exist so many years ago. And I really feel like you guys do some amazing work, and uh, we wanted to give you the opportunity to talk about why you exist, do you really make a difference? We know you do, but we like to talk about that. What you do, who you impact, and how you measure what you do, and why what you do is important. I hope you wrote all those down because you have to answer every single one of those questions. So let's start. <laughs> let's start with Nancy and Colin because um, you know you guys have been very invested in the young adult cancer community. You've been to our conferences. We've met several times. And uh, I'm quite inspired by what you do. So let's get started from ground zero. What do you do? Why do you do it? And what inspired you to start it? So what we do is offer free, week-long, for the most part, camps. Um, we're doing our first weekend camp this year. But we get survivors together, adult survivors. Um, all our camps are located in Colorado, in the Rockies and we do winter and summer camps. Um, and what we do is basically bring a group of survivors together. We do all ages. We have had a couple camps that are geared specifically to young adults, but we've also had camps where we've had an age range. Our last camp was 21 to 67 years old. And it really becomes like a family. And the dynamics are interesting. Cancer is what brings everybody together. And it's an amazing thing to witness. We came into this, my oldest son, Michael, was diagnosed with cancer in 2007. 
on August 29th at 8.15 in the morning. I will never forget that moment. And it changed his life, but changed his family's life. And we all wanted to do something to make a difference for others, to hopefully make it a little easier in someone's journey when they're diagnosed with cancer. And can you explain a little bit what these experiences are like for your group? It's called Epic Experience. What these experiences are like for people fighting cancer, cancer survivors. Uh, What do you guys offer for them? So what we do is our winter camps, they're geared around a one activity, one central core theme. Uh, during the summer, it's whitewater kayaking. This year has been a little crazy because we've had a lot of snow. Um, so it's been quite the exciting ride to get people out on a kayak on the rivers in Colorado and do something most of these people have never done before. And it really, for most of them, at the end of the week, we see it time and time again. It's like, I can't believe I just did that. I never thought I would do something like that again. That gave me hope that I can go back and I can live. We've watched and heard from people that have come into camp, and before they came to camp, they were sleeping all the time, severely depressed. Um, One woman, incredible woman um, from the East Coast who came and joined us and just really was kind of just waiting. Your prognosis is not great. It's lung cancer, and she was just sleeping. And she came to camp, and at the end of camp, she left, went home. She now is up every morning, walking, joined a dance class, and living her life again. And that's the bottom line that what we hope for, that cancer doesn't need to define somebody completely. There is still more to life. And what has been the the general – how do you, like, we're on your website with amazing pictures and photos, very inspiring stuff. How do you recruit? How do you get people to, obviously something that like, sure, I'd love this. This sounds amazing. But what's your strategy to get people involved? And, uh, you know, obviously you're creating a great alumni network of people that are being there. But what is that basic challenge of getting people to know you exist and producing these events? Uh, From the beginning, we only started two years ago. Last year was our first year of camps. This year, going into our second season, and from the very beginning, we partnered Abby Steibel, who started Epic Experience with me at the time, worked for Huntsman Cancer Center. So what we do is our goal is to bring people in from certain cancer centers. So we've partnered very closely with the University of Colorado Cancer Center here in Denver, with Huntsman Cancer Institute in Salt Lake City, University of California, San Francisco, and the Seattle Cancer Care Alliance in Seattle, Fred Hutchinson Cancer Center. And our goal is when we have camps to do weeks specifically from that area. So we bring in a group of people from Seattle, and they meet at camp and have an incredible time. And when they go back, our hope is, and we've seen this, that they're they're connected. They have people that have experienced something fun with them, and they continue that, whether it's just getting together for a barbecue or maybe going out and paddling around a lake or going out kayaking. So we've partnered in the beginning, and it's worked to be a great partnership um, with these hospitals. Those were kind of our targets where we started because we had connections there. Um, so now getting campers, because of our wonderful alumni, 
now all of a sudden it's kind of like the the river's flowing. We we are getting a lot of applications now from across the country, and we accept anybody from across the country. But those are the cancer centers we started with. So let's uh, flip the switcher back over to Dave, who has been on the show before and is very actively involved in much of what we do, and he's been contributing to the OMG Cancer Summit and uh, a really valued member of our community. Uh, Dave, you are uh, welcome back to the show, first and foremost, and we're uh, sorry Gwen couldn't join us tonight. But uh, True North Trax is, is really unique, and I'd like you to take some time to discuss uh, its origins and some of the uh, factors that make it something very special in the spectrum of these types of services available to patients. Sure, sure. I'm happy to. First and foremost, just thank you so much for having us on. We love you guys and think what you do is so important um, for helping cancer not be lonely and for, for really just making uh, I mean, your big medicine, what you guys do. So hats off to, to the show. Um, we, uh, we were about five years old, and basically we started uh, a small group of us who have been working in cancer and in the outdoors. We tried to merge some of our, our passions and interests together because one of the things that I was noticing, I'm, I'm a health psychologist by training, and I was working in, in clinics with lots of young adults and listening to stories, and one of the resounding themes is that uh, cancer can be disconnecting to everything else that was happening in a young adult's life, you know, the, the traditional laundry list of things that a person gets disconnected from. And uh, being big advocates of nature and the outdoors, we, um, we felt that by bringing small groups of, of adolescents and young adults out into the deep backcountry, into very remote and beautiful places in nature, that that you know that was uh, that was a really important thing uh, for a person to help get them reconnected again um, after going through something so unnatural as cancer treatment to get connected again to nature seemed like a really basic thing and you know as we started going with our programs we also saw other types of really important connections happening on our treks one was just a connection to other young adults there's nothing like being airlifted into deep backcountry where no cell reception works in your you're just out there with profound opportunities to to be with other people that have been through something similar. And, you know, we really try to make it a point in our leadership to not facilitate any kinds of okay, your time to share experiences, but it just happens naturally. And and people really just value that, that one-on-one time away from um, the other distractions that were happening. And then the last type of connection that we help to facilitate is we teach people how to meditate. Um, we're big proponents of a type of meditation called mindfulness meditation. And so on every trek, one of the things that we do on a daily basis is practice mindfulness meditation. That can be through a mindful hike. It could be through um, a mindful canoe ride or a, a mindful uh, just sitting somewhere, you know, in a beautiful spot. And so one of our, um, you know, one of our, our mottos is finding direction through connection. You know, True North is where the North Star resides, and we try to use that metaphor to help adolescents and young adults have an opportunity to reflect and reconnect and to help them find a direction, um, you know, in a, in a different place after they finish their treatment. And, Colin, how did you get involved in uh, getting all those organizations started? So um, with that experience, I was my older brother, Michael, I was his caregiver. Uh, we were in Colorado at the time, and parents still living in uh, California, and um, it just really hit close to home for me. Um, I was here with them, you know, the whole way through and uh, really just wanted to 
find a way to give back. So originally I was working in the corporate realm of things and working for uh, Red Robin at their corporate office here in Colorado, and I just realized it's not, that's not me. It's not where I wanted to be, and I had found more to my life that I wanted to try and make a, uh, an impact for myself. And so I said, you know, went to uh, the co-founder of Epic Experience, uh, my mother, and uh, said, you know, what can I do to uh, join the team? Um, and uh, just realizing that's where I wanted to be, and I was missing a void in, in my my career path um, for myself just because I've always been um, doing retreats and things of that sort throughout my whole entire life. That's been a big part of it. I, I stopped sports and all that through all of my high school and college years and went into uh, more retreats and things of that sort. And, um, and so this camp was kind of a perfect fit for me with Epic, and I went to the co-founder and said, what are the chances of uh, me working and, and a good fit? And first thing she says to me after a moment of silence was, you know, you'd be working with your mother. <laughs> and uh, nice. But ever since, it's been a great fit. And, um, you know, my, my main role with Epic um, since I've come on is um, I am the um, camp organizer, if you will. Um, anything when it comes to um, camp procedures, kind of, uh, I run the show when we're up there and really uh, have a great time doing it. This is a good question for both of you, just because I know, you know, with my experience of fighting cancer, uh, at this time I'd be able to do this, um, just because I can't be ever that far away from a hospital. But just wondering, what, how do you decide what experiences to offer, and how do you accommodate people who, like myself, have, you know, disease where it is sometimes a little scary, and your doctors might not want you to do something like this? So how, how do you accommodate those type of patients, and what do you have for them? So I would say the first thing we do when somebody applies, first we give them a form and that we have their physician fill it out. So their physician's aware of where they would like to come to join us. Um, and then we have people come in and we get in touch with them. We always have a medical volunteer. Uh, we've had um, uh, physician's assistants from Memorial Sloan Kettering, University of Colorado. So we always have a medical volunteer at camp with us, and that really helps a lot of people just feel a little bit more at ease. Um, and then what we do, we're out whitewater kayaking, and we make it clear that's what we're going to do. We're going to take everybody out because it is kind of a team effect. We have 10 to 12 uh, survivors with us per camp, and we want everybody to be together to celebrate those successes. But that being said, there's days that some people it's just their cancer, the effects of cancer just make it difficult. They can't get back in the kayak. They need something else. Our incredible team, led by Master Chief, wonderful guy, we partner with Renaissance Adventure Guides in Denver. And what we do is like, okay, what do we need to do for this person? So we'll put them in an inflatable kayak. They may be in by themselves. If that's not good enough, all of a sudden we put them in an inflatable kayak with somebody else, with a guide or another volunteer. If they're still not feeling that and just say physically that's difficult, we'll put them in, a, in the raft. So they're still a part of the group because the group dynamic of being with the other survivors, feeling those joys of, wow, I just did that, we do our best to try and make it happen whatever that means for each individual person. I guess then the same question then for Dave, too. This is clearly I, – I went on a um, – uh, what's it called? Can't Make a Dream. I was at the Can't Make a Dream retreat in like 2005, 
and I was I was well by then. I wasn't at any ailments, but they made me fill out this expensive form, and I still had to get sign up from my doctors. Clearly, this is a necessary thing that that would really help. And we're going to discuss outcomes in a minute. What's the workaround for this, Dave? Yeah, so we we have two rounds of medical review. First by their oncologist or their oncology care provider, and then by our internal medical director. And our our checks cannot be done by everyone, maybe at the time where they would want to, because we we take people into the back country, which by definition means you're at least one hour from a hospital or a medical facility. And um, that's that's part of what's special about our treks is we go profoundly deep into nature. Um, and at the same time, we know that, you know, somebody who is experiencing, uh, who's going through active treatment, who might be experiencing, you know, uh, serious side effects or complications or maybe just needs to be on treatment, can't do it just yet. Um, that said, you know, we have we have both hiking as well as canoe-based treks and we, we do the canoe-based treks, especially to try to accommodate people who may be more uh, deconditioned from treatment. We certainly get a lot of people who are just finishing. It's, it might be more fatigued. Insurance, no matter. Sorry, Hello? I had a glitch. I had a glitch. That's all right. Sorry about that. Long, long story short is we, you know, we, we do similar things. We, um, we don't do adventure activities per se. We go hiking or canoeing to experience the, the natural setting and for that reason, you know, when we're hiking together, we go as slow as the slowest person, and we make that part clear from the first time we talk to someone on the phone that, you know, this might, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're there like, um, you know, like, like uh, the, the epic folks were talking about, you know, we're there for the group, and, um, and, and people, you know, rally around that. And so it, it's, uh, it's always a, it's never a negative thing. It's always a positive thing. And how do people, how is this funded? Is, do people have to individually f- do like a fundraising page or is there a fee for, that, uh, for the people participating that they have to pay out of pocket or is it completely funded by you guys? How yeah, does that all work? True North Treks, we offer, you know, we tell them that they're, they're, all their costs are free, free up front where we pay for the flights, every bit of gear. We've bought hiking boots and socks for people that, you know, we've had people come from the Bronx who've never set foot outdoors, let alone where we go. And so we try to help make every aspect of that um, as, as easy as possible. We do ask our participants to pledge to pay it forward to a future participant. And um, not everyone can or does, and some people do and some people overdo. And so, you know, that right there is one big piece for our, our sustainability model. And then the other piece is just fundraising. Um, I feel like I'm, I'm fundraiser-in-chief uh, more than anything else in the organization. I want to talk about outcomes because clearly one can always make the case, yeah, it's amazing to get away. We all need a break. You know, life gets kind of crazy and cancer is pretty horrible. But it's one thing to say that it's nice. Oh, that's so nice that you do this. What a wonderful time. You go on the river, you know. But you guys do it in a way that you can actually measure how much this improves the life of the person who attends. Is that correct? Let's start with, with Nancy and then go to Dave. Yes. I mean, it's being new as we are, um, you know, we can say absolutely. I know from our very first camp we saw a response 
from people from day one to the last day of what they came in with and what they left with. And what they left with was just that sense of I can go out and I can do things again. In a measured format, which I know especially in the medical community is very important, um, we've just actually one of our campers who was with us last year used to work for Gallup. So we are currently putting together a survey, um, more of a formal survey than what we currently have for our campers to see how they would rate it. What would they say makes the difference? But we had a camper to, uh, at the beginning of this summer who I wish I could have taped what she said. She was so incredibly eloquent in what the week meant for her and we've since met her husband, and her husband just said, you gave me my wife back. Hmm. And that's it in a nutshell. Uh, on the True North Trek side, you know, during my day job, I'm an outcomes researcher and uh, in, in cancer. And, and basically, so so that's that's not a new um, area for us, and so for you know every trek that we do, we we give our participants a, a pre-trek uh, survey as well as a post-trek survey, um, you know that has both areas for anecdotal expression and reflection as well as some you know more questionnaire-based items that you know are, are are validated skills. And so, similar to what we've done with the OMG now CancerCon conferences, Matthew, you know we've been looking at outcomes such as sense of connectedness with others. Um, we've been looking at, you know, just their own self-efficacy to meditate and to after they experience a week of intensive training, how confident did they feel that they can actually take that skill and bring it back to the front country after being, you know, in the back country with us. Um, we look at other outcomes like emotional well-being and physical function. And, and so, um, you know, we've presented at the uh, Critical Mass Conference uh, a couple of years ago on just some of our basic outcomes that have shown that, you know, it's, it's by no means a, a randomized controlled study. You know, people who are going there are going there because they want it, and we don't have a control group. But, you know, just from a pre- to post-trek change, we've seen some really strong effects in all of those outcomes that I talked to you about. So we feel we feel good about what we're doing, you know, with how we can do it with this kind of an experience. You know, it's it's not the perfect way, but it's it's what we have to do. So in terms of, of how you actually do measure that, can you go into the details? Because I was fascinated when you worked with us on our conference. You do a survey before and a survey after. How 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 is that proven itself? I assume this is this is science. Science yeah. is science. And we have yeah. outcomes, and there's something at the end of the equal sign, reality. How, right. What kind of questions do you ask? What, what is the experience like for sure. these people pre and post? Well, so, you know, the, the, the first principle of all of this is trust. You have to trust that what someone says on a survey really means what they mean. And, you know, for the last 50 to 100 years in our medical communities, we have taken such a paternalistic role of doctor knows more than patient in how we get outcomes that we have not had that trust. And even today, you still see a lot of physicians, unfortunately, that will minimize the importance of what somebody says on a, on a patient-oriented um, survey or questionnaire. And, and so once you, once you agree that what they say, you know, I have pain and I rate it as a four and that's my pain, then you go from there. And so basically the questions that we ask have to do with, you know, we, we try to make them as 
simple to to understand as possible. And um, you know, I, I won't I won't go into the nitty gritties there, but essentially, let's say I have ten different questions about social connection with others, and you know, you can tally those up and create a score, and you can see if before the trek their score was a 42, and after the trek it's now a 63, and then you you look at everyone's scores together, you can calculate an effect size that shows how meaningful that really is and how significant that is, and. Um, like I said, it, this is not a, a laboratory setting where we can do a real controlled experiment, but it's the best available method for getting outcomes data you know, that, that you have for an experience like what Epic is doing or what you know, TNT is doing. How do you each determine the location, the activity, the length, the duration? The, the, what, what factors go into determining what specifically is going to happen and when? over the course of the year in your programs? Let's start with Nancy. So all of our camps are at the same facility, um, whether it's winter or summer. We're at a 200-acre ranch at about 9,000 feet in Colorado, and that's because of a wonderful family that offer us their ranch uh, for six weeks a year um, to partner with them. So during the winter, um, it's obviously dictated by, as this year showed, a lot of snow. But again, gearing it toward what do we think people can do. During the winter, we do a little bit more variety. We do cross-country skiing, uh, snowshoeing, um, and then we have some other surprises that's not going to be a surprise anymore. Usually we try and take them dog sledding one day, which is a pretty sedentary thing to do, but probably most of one of the most exciting things of the week. But kind of like what Dave said, I, I've watched in the cross-country skiing and the snowshoeing, the group stays together. We have always had a few people that can go a little bit faster. We've had a woman that had stage four ovarian cancer, and it was a real challenge for her at 9,000 feet in Colorado, and it was incredible to watch a 21-year-old come around and right by her side go up the hill. So what we're doing is, you know, partly in partnership big time with, like I said, who we work with in Renaissance Adventure Guides, Adventure says what they do. And I think Adventure and going out, we horseback ride, we try and offer, we usually have somebody that offers massage during the week. Uh, we offer up yoga. Sometimes it's laughter yoga, which is a lot of fun and a true icebreaker. But it, it is all geared to the group and whatever that group. Each group is so different in uh, who comes into camp. And this question is for David. A lot of uh, dealing with cancer is the mind and body experience, you know, the mind and body connection. So you have meditation for people who are, come on your tracks. And what's been the feedback from people on that? Um, you know, it's, a lot. Most people have heard about it, and most people have not um, not done it. And so it's one of those things that can be kind of mysterious and mystical until you actually do it and see how basic it is and how how it can be integrated. So we have had phenomenal um, outcomes on the meditation. We also do yoga as well. And you know, by through through doing both of those things and, and really taking them through a developmentally sequenced curriculum that we've you know, really worked on over the years, 
they they walk out being able to go back to their lives back home and and have these real hard skills that they can take to their daily lives. Um, you know, the just the, the question Matthew asked before yours was how do we pick and our criteria are pretty simple. You know, I always tell the people who look for our tracks they have to be mind-blowingly beautiful destinations and remote. We don't want to bump into other people and we want every day's vistas to be crazier than the next in terms of just how amazingly beautiful it is. And uh, right now we've got trips this year in the Wind River Range of Wyoming, in Glacier National in Montana, in the Green River in Utah, and uh, Lewis and Clark Passageway in northwest Montana. So it would be awesome to have uh, that facility in Colorado. That sounds amazing. So we, we try to vary it up and really just go where, where no one else is, and it just has to be drop-dead gorgeous. So at the end of the day, like, this is something really important. And, again, the, the focus on youth, young adults, the necessities, why this is um, something fairly critical. And, again, I go back to how when I went on the Can't Make a Dream, there were really only two. It was First Ascent and Make a Dream back then. And now there are so many different organizations doing these really valuable services for our community. Uh, just a, a final question on the uh, on the show tonight here, in terms of how do you grow? How do you expand? Do you continue to do these? Are there extensions? Do you make them multiple day, multiple weeks? Do you go international? Can you each share a little bit about your vision for where you see the organization going in the next five years? Let's uh, start with Nancy. Well, our growth, we kind of set up the the overall template of what we saw for our future. And the growth, like I said, starting with these cancer centers. And the reason we do that is we're, we're, we bring a group of people together, and then the next step is we go back and we come to San Francisco. We were just in Salt Lake City last week with an incredible, we surprised one of our campers who's in the fight of his life, um, and his friends were doing a fundraiser for him, and we surprised them with the Epic Experience softball team coming in volunteers from Colorado, campers from Salt Lake City that were all there together. So that's our growth pattern, just to, to keep those communities growing. Last year we did a had our Colorado camp, and then right after we had a reunion at a local lake, brought the kayaks, told everybody, bring your family, bring your kids, bring your doctors, and let's expand this. And we're getting ready to do that again on August 3rd here in Colorado with all the survivors and campers and volunteers and donors that have helped us that are here in Colorado. So that's how we look to kind of expand our reach and our program. Our goal is to always do the camps in one location. We're not looking to really grow beyond that because we see a true success in the team we have of being able to offer just a great, great week every single time by doing it at the same spot at a gorgeous place. And Dave so and Gwen, what's, what's up with you yeah, guys? Yeah, so for us, growth is, you know, it's been the mantra du jour. Um, and we're right now, uh, we have more um, more demand than supply. We're, we're currently, you know, all volunteer run. Um, you know, Gwen works for five hours a week. And so she's essentially a volunteer at that. But basically, our growth um, goals are to... Um, Basically, we need to hire a small uh, staff. We need a development person, and 
um, you know, essentially uh, a new uh, executive director at some point to really be, you know, taking the reins on a, on a 24-7 or a 45 basis. And basically, um, you know, we'd like to be offering upwards of uh, 10 to 15 treks a year. This year is our first caregiver survivor trek. My wife Gretchen and I are actually going to be co-leading that one in September. Together, that was due to requests from participants that they really would love to bring their caregiver on a trek. Um, we've uh, we've gotten so many requests from 40-somethings that were diagnosed as a young adult but don't meet our 18 to 39 criteria. So we're also at, at some point going to be opening up a 40-something treks as well as expanding down to 15. Um, we've also gotten you know lots from from you know people who are below our 18 year year old threshold. Um, and then uh, oncology care providers is another group that we're probably going to be branching out into because they have also been asking us a, a supportive trek for oncologists and cancer nurses and, and social workers and people who work you know in, in in the trenches, if you will, with people going through this. So those are some areas that we're looking to expand to uh, as well over over time. Really, really fascinating stuff. I um I want to thank you both again for joining us on the show tonight. We've been speaking with Nancy Farrow, the founder of Epic Experience online at epicexperience.org, and Dr. David Victorson, who is the founder of True North Treks at truenorthtreks.org. Folks, thank you so much for joining us. We look forward to seeing you uh, in down the road, maybe at Critical Mass, maybe at CancerCon, all good things. Good luck and congratulations. Thank, thank you, you so much. much for having us. Thank All right. you. All right. Dave Vickerson, Nancy Farrow, thank you guys so much. Good stuff. Good stuff. So, uh, Jonathan, what did you think? I've been turned there we go. Off, back on. <laughs> oh, first of all, I want to thank you. And it reminds me of actually Mallory kind of touched upon something with being a therapist and, and, and empathy. I remember when I, in 96, when I was diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's, uh, I went to therapy and went to a therapist who had not had uh, a cancer experience, and he could only kind of stare at me, which is not unusual for a therapist in general. And then about six months later, he got diagnosed with prostate cancer, and I ended up being his therapist. And it was quite an interesting experience, except he still was charging me. But in general, <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I got more out of that experience by helping him and I think that's what Mallory's saying. The empathy part really makes quite a difference in, in the cancer journey. But I also want to thank you for having me back. No, I mean, it, it, you're a success story. You continue to be a success story. We like our alumni. Yes. Thank you. We love our alumni. I'm one of them now. Yes. We love our alumni. And, uh, you know, it's inspiring that, you know, you could be diagnosed with something so horrible and, and come out the other end fairly, you know, well, almost sane. <laughs> And Jewish. And Jewish. <laughs> Chaim. Well, that's right. It's the 18th yeah. year. Chaim all around. Yeah. No, it's good stuff. We're, I'm proud of you. We're proud of you. Thank it's you. good. You're a big fan. You've been a fan. You're, you're a member of the tribe. There we are. So, all, all of them. So thanks for joining us uh, live so today tonight. Any uh, follow-ups? So, Annie, you, you didn't – did you go to FT? You, you, uh, they actually called me with an opening for a spot, like – three days after my had told hysterectomy. So I was like, yeah, I can't make it. Oh, okay. And then I think they called me. It was either that. Yeah, I think that's the wrong when they called me. I've applied before. I just, uh, I, I'm not in a place where my doctor would ever allow me to do that. I had to, like, beg to go to OMG. Right. So she, you know, I'm allowed to do most 
trips, but they're really, my doctors like want to keep a really short leash on me as right. far as, and the idea of being like an hour from a hospital. That, you got to uh, do like true urban treks where you troll through like the one train tunnel. <laughs> yeah. I need, I need like a first ascent, like Westchester. <laughs> like that's what I can handle right now. I mean, I can do, it's just the, like, you know, you want to be in touch with nature. A, I'm not in touch with nature at all, but, uh, you gotta kill five Robert Moses. You know, yeah, Yonkers is beautiful this time. Of I'm gonna go with is. Epic Experience, the Mole People, or Epic Experience, Bronx Zoo. Nice. Yeah. That's gonna be my All Epic right. Experience. Okay, great. Panda bears. Are they pandas? No, I don't think they no. have pandas. No, isolate that sound. I was like, is this a Jimmy Fallon thing? National Zoo, I think. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that is the National Zoo. That the panda cam. Yeah, that's right. The panda cam. Good stuff. All right, well, a great show tonight, guys. Very exciting stuff. And uh, let's kick it off here with our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. You ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show. Our 315th broadcast. We have as much fun as we did. Hope you're sick as sick cancer. I'd like to thank our guests tonight, Mallory Dowds, Jonathan Shine, and Nancy and Colin Farrow and David Vickerson from Epic Experience and True North Trex, respectively. Thank you so much. And next week's show, Cancer Mimi Broke. Cancer is expensive, period. Too often you win the battle, you win the fight, but you lose everything thanks to crushing debt and medical bankruptcy. This is not okay, and the folks that give forward, including Ethan Austin and Ariana Vargas, are doing something about it. Join us as we discuss our broken healthcare system, the ridiculously high cost of care, and what people are doing about it. So our spotlight on blogger Sarah Dalzell. Subscribe to our show anytime for free on iHeartRadio Talk, iTunes Podcast, and Blog Talk Radio. Check us out anytime online at stupidcancer.org and stupidcancer.org, stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck, on behalf of Annie Goodman, Kenny Kane, Maureen Sweet, Mallory Rivera, myself, and our whole team here at the Stupid Cancer Show. Thanks for listening. I'll see you back here next week, live Monday, 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Good night, everybody. Good night.